LBJ says welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor. I hope as I'm speaking to you, it's a week after Easter. I had a week off from podcasting. It wasn't because that's what I do, because all of you who know me will know that I produce podcasts and journalism and all sorts of other rubbish around the clock. But last week there was no podcast, lads, because I was knocked out completely uh, by what I think was another dose of COVID. Uh, which, do you remember COVID? Remember when we were all sort of staying at home and doing nothing and trying not to spread a, some class of a plague around the world? Yeah, apparently it hasn't got away, lads. And uh, about 10, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, <clears throat> um, about 10 days ago actually, yeah, uh, I got an awful schmack of it. And I thought, ah, oh, here's a bit of a cold and that kind of thing. And then it kind of felt, uh, started to feel like somebody had taken out my lungs and used them as practice for the Irish women's rugby team um, it you know sort of hoofing them up in the air and generally sort of you know catching them, stamping on them, uh, hooking them in the scrum and mauling them and gen- and then they just put them back in and I was just knocked out for days, lad. So that was no crack whatsoever. Lost the whole of Easter, which is one of the few times of the year when things go a little bit quiet. Easter and Christmas for three or four days there, especially when you're based in Europe, uh, not a lot will happen. So I spent all that sort of flattening me back doing bugger all and that and uh, now I am back with you again. I'm delighted to be so. Um, it's the first podcast of the year where I've had to close the window. I'm actually at home recording this now because of uh, pressures of work and trying to catch up on everything I missed when I was sick and that kind of thing. And for the first time this year in Stockholm, Sweden, where I'm based, lads, I had to close the window because the birds are singing outside. They're back. The spring has returned to the northern hemisphere and there's a grand old stretch of the evenings and it's all happening. And I realise that you could be listening to me talking about these things down in Melbourne and you're facing into winter and a bit of wet weather. And sure, Jesus, it might even get as low as about six degrees somewhere down there. No sympathy for you, lads, you are living the dream. Um, This week's podcast is mostly about what has been happening in Ireland. And I was planning to bring it to you last week. And at this stage, I'm kind of glad I didn't, right? Because what we're looking at, lads, over the last week or so, or 10 days or so, pretty much all the time I had COVID, um, we've been looking back over the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Now, I know there's loads of people who are listening to this who are the same age as myself, who remember the troubles and remember history and that kind of thing. I know there's a load of people who are listening to this who were born abroad, who live in Boston and live in San Francisco and New York and that kind of thing and have a very limited memory, if any sort of memory at all, of the whole situation. So the Good Friday Agreement essentially was the agreement between the British and Irish governments that essentially brought an end to what we call euphemistically the Troubles, uh, what was happening in Northern Ireland from the mid-1960s, I suppose, until the mid-1990s when the IRA called a ceasefire, I think it was in 1995 and that. And it brought an end to all that, but it's one of those things that if you turn on certain news channels or if you read in certain newspapers and that kind of thing, you'd almost get the impression that it was all over. You know, that, oh, that, that was it then, Good Friday Agreement, and then, uh, yeah, that was it, and now we have peace, and your Jesus is and everything great, and we have the Wild Atlantic Way, and you can drive up the north and everything else like that, and it's brilliant. And it's not that simple. And in the week that followed then, to, as part of that celebration, President Joe Biden, the President of the United States, and who some would call the leader of the free world, uh, decided he was going to pay a visit to Ireland, because obviously the American government was instrumental in bringing these things about, not least because they promised everybody a huge peace dividend and loads of money, and Jesus, lads, I think he only said the other day that there was like 12 billion ready to be invested in Northern Ireland if they can get Stormont up and running again and that kind of thing. And that was another one of those weird things, lads, where... You, you you know you know when the, the relatives arrive. I think David McWilliams calls it the good room. They get brought into the good room where nobody's ever allowed to go unless they're a visitor. And the good china comes out and the good biscuits come out. You know the biscuits you were trying to eat on a Wednesday. No, you wouldn't be eating them at all, lads. Now they're for the visitors, right? And all that came out, and we started to put, put together this very uh, the best side of ourselves, I suppose you call it. You know, with the various different politicians and dignitaries and people from public life coming out, and we're all slapping each other on the back about the great things we've done and how great we all are and that kind of thing. But the unfortunate thing, you know, and obviously a peace is to be celebrated. Any kind of peace is, is better than any kind of violence. But at the same time, we need to kind of lift the hood and look under it. See what it was that we got 25 years ago. Has it delivered on the promise 
that Tony Blair and that Bertie Ahern and that various paramilitary political groups made to, to us and to each other at that time. So rather than, you know, sort of get out the, the tricolour and the red, white and blue flag and start waving them for Joe Biden and saying how great we are, I decided I'd have a chat with the woman who I think basically is Ireland's best political journalist, Aoife Grace Moore, is from Derry. Now, I don't know why I always call her Aoife Grace Moore, but that's how she sort of identifies herself on Twitter. Uh, Aoife Moore is probably how she's known to her mommy and her daddy and to all her friends, that kind of thing. But for some reason, that was the first time I heard of her was being called Aoife Grace Moore. It's just stuck with me ever since. And Aoife is a tremendous journalist from Derry. Um, obviously grew up there, went to school there, went to university, has worked a lot in Irish media, worked for the Irish Examiner, most recently for the Sunday Times. And she's also writing a book about Sinn Féin at the moment, and she's doing some freelance work uh, around, she's doing a lot of freelance work actually at the moment, we were just sort of talking off air about it. But Aoife's one of these people who is tremendously insightful, right? No matter what she has to say about a situation, she's always taught these things too. She's taught these three... I can't speak, lads. Taught these things through. And it's uh, it's always entertaining to hear what she has to say. It's always It always gives me a new perspective on, on what I think about things as well. And she's not the kind of person who's easily provoked. Uh, she's not the kind of person who takes things personally. So you can have a very, very in-depth uh, discussion with these things about her. And... Like most people on the island of Ireland, she has a sort of a personal stake in this in some way, and that an uncle of hers was murdered on Bloody Sunday, and that's one of the things that comes up early in the conversation. And that makes it all the more intriguing, because in one sense, I'm talking to her as a political journalist who has to keep a sort of a cool head and t- try to look at both sides and balance things up. But on the other side of it, you can never quite get away from it, from the fact that all of us were touched in some way by this, even if it was people uh, down south in the Republic, even if it was people in Boston collecting money for Norad, or for people in Sydney who are saying, oh, well, that's great now, now we have peace and that kind of thing. We've all been touched by it in some way. We all have our biases. And yet Aoife manages to do a great job of, you can almost hear when she's talking from a personal perspective, and you can hear when she's talking from a political or a journalistic perspective as well, which is why I thought she'd make a perfect guest to get around to talk about these things. And um, yeah, I suppose let's not get too much further into that. Before I go, I will say to you that uh, this is a community-supported podcast. It only exists because you do, and I could very much do with your help in keeping this podcast uh, on the go, right? There's two ways you can do that. Patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm. Patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm. Start throwing in a fiver a month there, lads, right? Because especially when I'm sick, <laughs> it'll make all the difference to me. But the other thing is, and almost most importantly, and even if you are a financial supporter, that kind of thing, the responsibility doesn't end there please 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 share these podcasts right if you're listening to it, if you find it entertaining if you get anything out of it please share it with other people especially with other Irish people around the world if you think it might say something to them if you think that it might they might get something out of it if you yourself have something to add to the discussion uh, please feel free to share these things on your own social media and that kind of thing and if you tag me or whatever I'll do my best to come in and to explain and to answer any questions and to take part in any discussions that may be going on here because I really do want to believe that, uh, I, do, I really do want to build this into a podcast for the global Irish community just the 70 million of us around the globe so that's that for this week that's the housekeeping I'll be back to you just to say goodbye but in the meantime here is my chat with Aoife Grace Moore about the Good Friday Agreement the visit of Joe Biden and uh, what kind of peace we have if it's peace we have at all in the north and on our island at the moment Good evening. A historic day at Stormont after two years of talks and after a generation of bloodshed and decades of division and acrimony, George Mitchell ushers in what the whole island hopes will be a new era of peace, an agreement that unites loyalist and republican, unionist and nationalist leaders in a wide-ranging historical accord. The two prime ministers emerged just before six this evening to inaugurate the historic agreement they hope will usher in a new era for the island. There was praise for the Taoiseach and for the parties from Tony Blair, who paid tribute to all who had lost their lives in the conflict, suggesting that the nature of today's deal would change relationships in Northern Ireland forever. The principle of consent is absolute and is throughout the agreement. And the breakthrough is that that is now accepted by all North and South. Also, those who believe in a united Ireland can make that case now by persuasion, not violence or threats. A view echoed by the Taoiseach. My ultimate political aspiration remains the coming together of all the people of Ireland, achieved peacefully and by consent. I value deeply the close relationship between the Irish government and the British government. 
but I look forward equally to a new era of friendship and reconciliation between unionists and nationalists in which each tradition can learn truly the value of the other. Aoife, I'm trying to do the sums here and I worked out that you were about six or seven when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Do you have any conscious memory of that time in Northern Ireland? Yeah, definitely. So I have a real, I can remember before it and after it um, quite clearly. We were, me and my family were in um, Donegal. We were in Gidor for Easter holidays when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Um, I was seven and I was sitting watching cartoons and the news flash came over and cut the cartoons off and the news came on. And I went down to the kitchen to complain to my mom and dad that they had turned the curtains off. <laughs> and I, could, I remember my mommy looking at my daddy saying, it must be the agreement, like it must be something that's happened. And um, they sat and watched the news all day. Um, and that was the day ruined. But, you know, like going on that holiday, we would have went through two British Army checkpoints in the car just from getting from Derry to Donegal. Mm. Um. I would remember just not just even the British Army being around and, you know, the helicopters would be out when you're walking to school and the helicopter used to have this big camera that um, have, like hung out the bottom with a the chopper and uh, children would be given various finger signals uh, and so it's up to the British Army and even like the militarization of the police, you know, the police do you still do you carry you know guns openly um but then there was just it seemed so much more threatened you know it was the RUC back then the land uh the land rovers were different um the uniforms were different there was just a like a general feeling that we didn't talk to them and they didn't talk to us um and there was just a heavier police presence in Derry generally because there would have been a lot of IRA activity in Derry before the Good Friday Agreement, um, that would have been the same in West Belfast and South Armagh as well. Um, but definitely the demilitarization, I think, is the thing I remember the most. You couldn't you didn't couldn't put your finger on it like one day they were there and the next day they were gone. It was a slow process. But that's the one thing I remember because from when we were wee, we were always told that you you were afraid of the army and you were afraid of the police. And I would have came up came up at a time, you know, with a lot less violence and a lot less conflict than my parents. But there was there still an atmosphere there that you knew that you didn't live in a place like other people. That was a big thing being a kid in the north as well. Like you were very aware that our people didn't live like this. Like you didn't get your car searched going on holidays in other places, you know. Well, even at the age of seven, because that was one of the things that always struck me was that in one way, things were very normal. That was just what people did. When you got off the bus in Belfast, you had to switch into this way of thinking and say, mm. right, there are soldiers on the streets here. You can't just walk wherever you want to go. I mm. remember nearly getting run down by a Land Rover in Uri and somebody said, of course, I'm not going to stop you fucking idiot, you know? Yeah. And that was the thing. But so even for the age of six or seven, was that sort of, was that by osmosis, Eva, Eva, or was it, did your mommy and daddy actually say to you, look at, you know, don't look at them, don't go near them, don't be cheeky? No, like there was never much of that in our house at all. I think maybe because what's different for me is because my uncle was, my uncle was murdered by the British Army on Bloody Sunday. And so I always knew about Bloody Sunday. I always knew that the British Army killed someone in my family. So I think it was never a thing of you You have to be afraid of them. But as a kid, you're obviously going to take that in. Mm. And I remember you would hear wee things at school. So, like, I didn't know what a Protestant was. Um, I remember the first time somebody told me what a Protestant was. And, like, I'd heard it before, but I was maybe about six. And there was a wee girl in my class, and she said to me, oh, we hate, we hate Protestants. And I said, Why? And she said, because they hate us. <laughs> and it's that just shows you the kind of like childlike mentality that so it was never mentioned in our house. We were never told that you didn't um talk to the police or talk to the army or anything or, or anything sectarian, but you do pick it up, pick it up from kids in the street, you pick it up from adults in the street, you pick it up from adults' attitudes when the cops stop the car, when the soldiers stop the car, you can see in your dad's face that there's no joking now, you know, and we don't like these people and they don't like us. It, um, When you get stopped, 
there was no um pleasantries <laughs> um being swapped or anything like that, especially um in the parts of Derry, because close to the border it would have been um more Republican uh, and a bit more dangerous, I suppose, for the army and the civilians as well. Were your mum and dad, were they political people at all? No, like we come from, I come from a campaigning family, Um, obviously because of the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign. But the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign, um, very much from the outset, was non-political. Um, it was non-sectarian, non-political, wasn't aligned. Um, I would say that the only people who backed the campaign from the start were um, Sinn Féin and ASDLP, um, which, to be fair, um. They were the only two parties that actually <laughs> uh, people voted, Catholics voted for in Derry at the time, so that would make sense. But, you know, when the the justice campaign started, Mary Robinson wouldn't meet us when she was the president of Ireland um, because she, um, her people said that it was a front for the IRA. So Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael did not want to know us. Um, and so, no, there was no real politics in the House. But there was a lot of campaigning and there was a lot of talk about politics in the house. When you look at that, I've always had this feeling of that in some way that people in the Republic betrayed the people of Northern Ireland. When you speak about your uncle and when you speak about the, the victims of Bloody Sunday and how Finna Fallen for the Gael then turned their back on the on the search for justice for the people who were mm -hmm. murdered that day. How does that feel as as a, a person from Northern Ireland to, to be ignored? Was that something that, you know, are you angry at, you know, the Free State, the Republic for, for the I'm, way that you were treated? I'm more angry that they won't accept, they won't, that people won't accept us. I am not angry that successive Irish governments does nothing to help the North until Berta Heron. I am more upset and annoyed that they won't accept that as the truth. Um, take even Bloody Sunday out of it. You know, in in one area in Derry, Annette McGavigan was 14 years old and was wearing her school uniform when the British Army shot her in the head. Daniel Hegarty was 12 years old. He was playing on the street when the British Army shot him in the head. These are Irish citizens. Why was something not done when the British Army were picking off children in the street? Um, I could list off, I don't know how many children that were murdered by the British Army um, through live rounds and rubber bullets. And there was plenty of hand-wringing, plenty of all, I'll speak to Mrs Thatcher about that and I'll speak to John Major about that, but none was ever done. Um, and I think the thing that bothers me more is a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that. And I think the partitionist attitudes of certain people in the South is a coping mechanism because they can't acknowledge that they abandoned their own people. That's why people fucking hate, sorry I'm allowed to curse, but that's why people fucking hate me and they hate Joe Bradley because they hate being reminded that both sides weren't as bad as the, each other. Catholics didn't have a vote. Catholics couldn't get a house. Catholics couldn't get a job. They don't want to acknowledge that it was so easy to ignore us and just pretend, oh, they're all mad up there. Um, so I myself don't hold that much LOL. Um, I wouldn't love here for that, but for older people, and I can even say that some people in my family and in my friends' families have very little regard for the South and the Republic because they feel totally let down and abandoned. And I often think <laughs> When all, there's a lot of talk about a United Ireland and how, you know, there's work to be done, you know, to help unionists um, cope with any new Ireland. I actually think there, it would go a long way for people of my mommy and daddy's generation for there to be some acknowledgement that enough was not done to help them. Micheál Martin was the first Taoiseach to go to a Bloody Sunday commemoration. It was 50 years after the British Army murdered 14 people. It's the first Taoiseach came up. And even after Tony Blair, or even after David Cameron apologised, even after the Savile Inquiry came out, even after a Conservative Prime Minister said it was unjustified and unjustifiable, we could not get a Taoiseach to come to Derry and stand with us. And then we're supposed to believe that these are Republicans who, who see us as their equal. 
it's laughable. If you, if you zoom out from your personal uh, stake, if you like, in this, and you put on um, Ireland's finest political reporter, bar none, right? If you put your political hat on, right, Does can you see a reason for that? Can you see a lot, even if you don't agree with it, can you see, okay, this is what they were trying to do. They didn't want to strengthen Sinn Féin. They weren't proud enough of their own Republican credentials. They were trying to protect what, what they had. What was the reason behind that? Because to me, there there is no valid reason for not doing that because quite simply what you're asking them to do is to show sympathy and empathy. Sympathy and empathy and have some bottle in the face of the British government um, and I think for a long time successive governments in the Republic have been afraid of the British government have been afraid to make waves have been afraid of confrontation because it's such a powerful nation um, and they didn't feel like there was anything in it for them what Rot there was no vote, no votes in it. No votes in the we can't vote for you. Um getting on to the Brits doesn't do anything except annoy the Brits. Um so I think they just thought, well, what's in it for us? Um and like all things, it came to their door too. You know, they didn't, you know, loyalist paramilitaries um were picking people off. And then they bombed Monaghan. And then they bombed Dublin. They're, the notion that the yous were going to be left alone too is ridiculous. And yous weren't. Um, so I don't know. I don't think... I think... I don't think it's a lack of empathy on the public's part. But I think it was a lack of courage and political leadership on the politicians' part of uh, successive governments of the day. But we often see that, Eva, that the the politicians, you know, uh, like what was it? I think it was George Bernard Shaw who says that democracy is a guarantee that people will get governed exactly as they deserve, right? But mm. there has always been a sort of a disconnect for me between what the Irish government does and what the Irish people actually want, right? I would have figured that the Irish people would have been far more sympathetic and empathetic to, to Northern Republicans and Northern Catholics than what the governments ever were and what the ministers ever were. Well, how do they How do they justify that? How do they get away with that? Is it just a sort of the real politic thing where they get in and they go, hang on a second, it's not as easy to tell these fuckers in Whitehall well, uh, what we're being told on the doorsteps? Yeah, I don't think they were being told on the doorsteps. I think, you know... People um, worry about their own bread and butter. And like when it comes to government elections in the South, they weren't going to say, oh, I'm worried about the North. But when it came to community support, like I can say even from my own family's experience after Bloody Sunday, thousands and thousands of punts were sent to my family and the Bloody Sunday families. There was collections in every chapel for the orphans of Bloody Sunday. So there was community support. Um, and I know... Um, the other side of it is this, um, I think there was no, I, I know I just said this, but there was no votes in it and it wasn't a major concern because they didn't think it was ever going to come to their doorstep. Um, so I think there was an apathy from the governments, um, especially in the years of, you know, John Bruton, Fine Gael, but, um, I think there was a genuine fear they were intimidated by the British. Um, I think that's obvious. I think they still are. Um, it is rare that you will ever see, um, I, even with Boris Johnson, and I know the dip diplomacy comes under certain things and you have to act a certain way, but, you know, the hunger strike was the biggest recruitment tool that the IRA ever had. And... Even then, you know, the Irish government could not get their shit together to even say to Thatcher. Like, the, the, when you read the state papers of the kind of memos that were going to Thatcher and the letters that were going to Thatcher, they're so fucking wishy-washy. And for me, everything else aside, you're extending the troubles. They extended the war. The hunger strike extended the war. Because thousands and thousands of people joined IRA. That's that's the long and short of it. It's it's very short-sighted. It's very for it was very, you know, the fire in front of me, you know, that sort of way. Mm. Um and I think they ultimately paid um the price for it. 
in you know how awful we all paid for the price of it and how awful the troubles were and for what gain because the the British really don't think anything of Ireland north and south anyway you know um in terms of our importance we're nowhere near you know France America anyone like that they're near his neighbor but we saw in Brexit that they don't they they don't don't understand us and they don't care um, if we look at this of the historical perspective, right, seven years old, this agreement is signed, no cartoons that day, but presumably things <laughs> got better after that. Do, do you, when you look back on that time now, do you feel that, you know, you noticed a change? Because it's one of the things that, and I've been to Derry on several occasions, and, you know, okay, there's no Land Rovers, there's no checkpoints or going over to Guidor and Donegal, that kind of thing, but... Mm. I don't know if there's any, you know, if you go to the Diamond, which I doubt you've done on too many occasions, you know, you don't go there to hang out. There's no great sort of cross-community uh, integration in the last sort of 25 years, is there? Well, first of all, I think we, you mean the fountain. Um, like the fountain. So the, yeah, the fountain is where the Peace Wall is uh, in Derry. So uh, the fountain is, um, just for your listeners, a small um, unionist slash loyalist um, estate in, the, in Derry City Centre, which is... Um, separated from the rest of the city centre by a police wall. Um, I didn't have any Protestant friends. Um, uh, Derry is a bit different and it's nearly, uh, it's a majority Catholic city or national city. Always has been. Um, it's a lot more integrated now than it used to be. Is it, yeah? But, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I went to Catholic primary school. I went to a convent, secondary school. Um, played GA, went to Irish dancing, so I wasn't going to meet any Protestants there. Um, so I only actually met a Protestant my own age when I was 16. Um, and then my ma jokes that I didn't meet one till I was 16, and then I went out of my way to kiss every single one of them because every boy I always brought home, I always brought home as a teenager, always turned out to be a Protestant. Um, it was never an issue in my house, but I can't say that for everyone in Derry. Um, my first boyfriend actually went out with him for four years, he was. Presbyterian, his brother was in the PSNA. Um, so that was obviously kind of a shock to a culture shock to both of our houses. Um, but there was no issue, there was no animosity. His parents were um really lovely to me and he and vice versa. But um, you know, other people in my family have had Protestant partners and not been allowed into their house, into their parents' house. So um those attitudes are dying out and thank God for it. But they are still there, um, not as much in Derry, but you know we know that you know there's nearly sixty peace walls in Belfast, keeping two communities apart, and I really, really believe that the 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 reason behind that is the lack of integrated education, integrated education, and the aim of desegregating our education system is a key part of the Good Friday Agreement, and it has not in any way been realised. Um, I think it's like the. Secretary of State after Secretary of State have tried and tried to desegregate schools in Northern Ireland and fail. Um, and you have to question why the politicians don't make this a goal. And then there are certain parties who gain from segregation and keeping communities apart because it's more divisive. You're more likely to come out of this more divided. And the more divisive parties, I have to imagine in a cynical way, don't see um, again, from desegregating um, our communities and our schools. And I think it's the, our, the great detriment of the children of Northern Ireland. Is that because not only, you know, are they gain? I mean, you know, if they don't have that segregation, then they cease to exist, right? Because I, I remember talking to Wayne McCulloch on this very podcast a while ago, who's the Irish boxer uh, who represented, mm-hmm. you know, came from the Shankill, represented Ireland, mm-hmm. carried the flag, at the Irish tricolour at the 1988 Olympics, like, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. he always says that uh, there was no peace walls in rich areas. There's only peace walls in working no. class areas. And then boxing was one of those things that everybody turned a blind eye to where everybody was from. Everybody just yeah. got on with it. They, everybody got together. They boxed. They had a few drinks. They had some lead and then they left. But for these more hardline parties, Aoife, if you introduce, you know, when you were 16, you started to meet Protestant boys and that kind of thing, and you realize that they don't have two heads and they don't have yeah. boobs and that they're just they're the same as everybody else kind of thing does is that really the end of extremist politics such as it is in northern ireland if that sort of integration and in education starts to happen yeah and i think as well 
we need to be honest when you look at you know the language of um all the parties in Northern Ireland there's only one party who has not progressed in the last 30 years in their language and their vision towards other people's culture um, and it is that party who's keeping Stormont out as well um, you cannot tar all the parties with the same brush you cannot even compare Sinn Féin to the DUP because um, when it comes to their language of reconciliation well either believe it or not it's a different thing but the language of reconciliation is there uh, it's not on the other side um, and you know every party in in Stormont other than them says that apart from obviously the TUV but you know that's the thing when you go like and this is the thing for me so like in Derry on Monday Easter Monday we saw riots um, in, in Craigan where my family are from just right next to our the cemetery um, we had riots with wee boys you know some of them are about young as eight and we see it every Easter Monday that is not happening in the middle class areas in Derry. That is happening. And Craigan is one of the most impoverished areas in the most impoverished area of Northern Ireland. You know, Derry, Derry and Strabane District Council is the lowest earning district council area in the North and one of the most low earning in, in the UK. Every year, Derry has the top of a list that you do not want to be on lowest or longest long-term debt, lowest yearly average wage, you know, drugs, mental health, um, longest people on the dole, disability, love and alliance, a lot of that to do with mental health and PTSD. So, you know, the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement that hasn't brought any opportunities for them wee boys. Um, so why wouldn't you go to a riot on Easter Monday? Because you've got fuck all else to do. Um, and the British government, who still have a, st a say um, in how your life turns out and still have a say in how much money Stormont gets, do not represent you know anyone who cares about you. Um, and then that is how, and this happens in loyalist areas as well, and it is happening in loyalist areas, that is how these older men then groom, that's what it does, it's grooming younger boys, and it's mostly boys, into joining these paramilitary gangs and doing their dirty work for them. Um, I have had close friends whose younger brothers who have done extensive prison sentences um, from 18. You know, their whole young lives gone because they thought they were going to be Bobby Sands because older men got them to carry bombs for them. You know, it's never them taking the chances. It's never them taking the risks. It's the young men. And it's predatory. And it's hateful um but it is predatory of young boys with vulnerable households um it's like everything else you know you could nearly there's a formula did the type of wee boys um that are involved um i like boys i used to hang about with school and go to discos when i are you know i won't even acknowledge them in the street because i know that they're in these paramilitary gangs and some of them were involved in the riots in which Larry McKee was shot and these are you know people who we used to go to the same discos together we were given you know brought up in the same area um and the same social circles but we haven't been afforded the same opportunities in life because of our family backgrounds or whatever else so I find the riots incredibly depressing but I don't blame the wee boys on the riots it's it's the grown men who know better who are organizing them and taking advantage of the vulnerable that should be in prison. But those grown men, Aoife, if I can play the devil's advocate for a second here, where they were the wee boys of 1995 when the Good Friday Agreement happened and we were all promised, I remember the term, the peace dividend was bandied around like fucking no man's business by Tony mm. Blair and Bill Clinton. Why hasn't that paid off in the Cregan? Why hasn't that... Why it hasn't we... paid off. It hasn't paid off anywhere. The last um report that was done by Queen's University shows that it's minimal, really, really minimal across Northern Ireland. Um, and unemployment has gone down. Productivity has gone up, but very little else. You know, um, average wages are incredibly low. It's unskilled work. 
we have a huge brain drain. So young people like me who get a university education leave Northern Ireland and never come back because there are no opportunities there. Also bad governance. Stormont has only sat 60% of the time since its formation. So you can't even plan a budget. You know, you can't get the community funding into these vulnerable areas like Tigers Bay and the Shankle and Craigan and the Bogside because every time Stormont's up it goes down again and you have civil servants who do not have the power and should not have the power to give away money if it hasn't already been given a wage or when Stormont was up. We don't have an appropriate domestic violence strategy and Northern Ireland is the most dangerous place in Europe to be a woman. Our rates of domestic violence are through the roof and they are getting worse. Um, femicide is, we are tied with Romania um, for the rate of femicide. Um, and that's a hangover from the troubles. That's when you accept a certain level of violence in the home or violence in the street, violence then becomes normal in the home. We need to understand that there are thousands of people in Northern Ireland living with PTSD um, that was never acknowledged. Um, at the time of the Good Friday Agreement, one in every 10 people in Northern Ireland either were related to someone or knew someone who had been murdered or severely injured in the troubles. So that's thousands of people with some sort of trauma connected to the conflict. And that's not including people who are fighting for justice. That's the families of the Bally Murphy massacre, Patsy Gillespie's family, Columba McVeigh's body is still somewhere in a bog in Meath. Pat Finucane's children are still fighting collusion, McGurk's bar. You know, you could go on and on and on and list hundreds of people who are still fighting for answers. And that's not including, for instance, my cousin who was seven when he seen a, an RUC man shot in front of him. Um, I threw up the whole day, got detected the next day off school and never talked about it again. How many other children who are now adults are living like that? So we are in this situation because what should have happened after the Good Friday Agreement is that special attention should have been paid in how we treated our most vulnerable people. And instead, um, those in power, as usual, couldn't agree on the colour of shite. And we have not been able to get Stormont in any way working um, for any decent period of time since it started in 1998. Is this a case of history repeating itself in a way, Aoife? Because when the guns fell silent, et cetera, et cetera, to use all this poetic bollocks that people tend to use when they're talking about things like this, all of a mm. sudden, wealthy people and middle class people weren't as bothered by this anymore. There were no more checkpoints. They weren't stopped. There was no or very little risk of bombs or shooting or, have you know, you could go to downtown Belfast. You could go to Derry without any of these worries anymore. And mm. it was just the working class communities that were sort of abandoned. Everybody else got back to living almost a normal European life. And it was just, you know, everybody else was left to sort of fester. And because it didn't affect them then, well, then they started to use this as a sort of a pawn. As a, like Stormont became a political game more so than any sort of administration. I think uh, in some ways it is actually kind of predictable because the thing we need to remember that Stormont was like, the Good Friday Agreement was such a compromise for people. And I know it was brilliant, obviously. Jesus, like I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if it wasn't for the Good Friday Agreement. But the peace was one thing. But you need to remember, like it was a big, big compromise for people to say, right, this is it now. Especially if you had lost someone to paramilitary violence or British Army violence. And then they say, okay, it's all over now. We're letting everybody out of jail and you're probably never going to get an inquiry. That's how it's going to work. Um, that was really hard for people. Like, we let thousands of people out of jail. I still, like, laugh out of pure, I don't know, shock or disbelief. It had to happen. That It happens in other countries with peace, you know, peace processes and reconciliation. But to get people to agree to that, you know, men and women who get bombed and murdered and shot, Jesus let them all out of prison. You know, that was hard for people, um, the public, to take in. Um, but it was important to get loyalist paramilitaries and, and Republican paramilitaries to sign on to peace as well. 
Um, so these everything has to come. Everything has a compromise. Um, and I think in the in the wake of the peace process, there was maybe a feeling that we've compromised enough. I'm not giving anything else away. What as as they always used to say, what we have, we hold. Um, and I think there was complacency on the part of Dublin uh, and London because, and I don't blame them, but when the bomb stopped, there's less urgency. There's less feeling. If you can't actively see the blood in the street, then there's less urgency to do anything about the, the social problems. But the social problems we have now are leading into more blood in the street, and it mightn't be the same way. It mightn't be bombs, but it's domestic violence and it's overdoses and more people have died by 2018 more people had killed themselves in Northern Ireland that had died in the entirety of the troubles that's an incredible statistic all the same it's but it's also not surprising because we did not um in any way like the Good Friday Agreement barely mentions victims barely mentions victims um and there was never really a decision made about what we were going to do and that goes for how we were going to cope with victims, PTSD, intergenerational trauma, how we were going to teach the troubles at school, how we were going to help children understand the troubles. You know, that's all part of it. Um, that was supposed to come after. Um, you can't expect everything to be done in the Good Friday Agreement because it was already making the impossible happen. But we couldn't really get the after done um, for whatever reason. Now, People should also remember that Stormont collapsed the first time because there was an IRA spy ring in Stormont. Um, so, you know, Sinn Féin are um, not equally as guilty as collapsing Stormont as much as the DUP, but they have definitely had their moments. Um, and I just think when I look at, you know, when I, even when I'm writing the book now too, like there was so much political courage shown by people like uh, John Hume and and, and Martin McGuinness and um, David Irvine and Monica Williams. And that is what's really lacking now is political courage. Everybody's gone to their corner mm. and nobody wants to be seen to be holding out the hand anymore. Mm. Um, and without that... holding out the hand, that's that's how things get done. Yeah. I remember being in a, in a house on the outside of Derry, uh, on the outskirts of Derry, which is a big sort of bed and breakfast sort of hotel. I can't remember the name of the woman who runs the place now, but she was telling me the story of how John Hume used to hold meetings there in the evening and mm. she couldn't believe what he was doing and who he was inviting and that kind of thing. And you could have people from, you know, you'd have American intelligence, CIA, this kind of thing. And then there would be the IRA and there would be loyalist paramilitaries. And one evening she was very worried and she said she knew that John had invited people from the local IRA to talk to him. And uh, she said to him, John, do you, do you think they're going to have guns? And he says, Mrs, you worry about making the tea. I'll worry about the guns. <laughs> and he made them leave the guns outside. So he made some of them stay yeah. outside with the guns and this kind of thing. And, but, but again, the courage and the leadership of people like John, Mo Molum, uh, you mentioned the whole load of them there. Where is that going to come from, Aoife? Because I get the feeling that, you know, I, I don't know if it's even fair to ask you the question, but I get the feeling that this is not the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. It's not exactly something you were celebrating with champagne as such, was it? No. Um, and not even because Stormer doesn't. I, I just feel communities like mine have been left behind. Um, and that's true of when you look at the statistics on poverty and everything else I've just talked about. So... I am obviously delighted um, in peace. And I think the Good Friday Agreement is the best thing that the North has ever done. Um, but I haven't been celebrating. Um, I, I very much pay huge respect and homage to the people involved then. Um, I have very little hope at the minute for the political situation. I think the younger generation are the only ones who's going to solve this problem because what you will notice when you look at Stormont now is a lot of the people who are in Stormont at the minute are the same people who were there in 1998. Um, I, um, I feel like the big elephant in the room here as well, as, and no one ever seems to mention it, is that the DUP did not support the Good Friday Agreement. So it should not be a shock to us then that when they become more popular and at one point they were the largest party and in, in the assembly they're not now but they were 
it's no wonder that the Good Friday Agreement and everything after it fell apart. Because sure, they never supported it in the first place. Um, And I think it's only with younger people and we are seeing the DUP's vote diminish rapidly. Um, do people like the alliance? Um, and I think it's only through that that we're going to see any progression because I was actually chatting to a loyalist on Monday and they were saying the actual problem that Jeffrey Donaldson has is the same problem that Peter Robinson has and the same problem that Ian Paisley had before him is that when you surround yourself with radical extremists and then you begin to compromise, you painted yourself into a corner. Ian Paisley was basically forced out of his own party. Peter Robinson went the same way. Arlene Foster was told that she was too pally and put out too much reconciliation to the nationalist community. So they foment radicalised you know, ideology. And then when the leader of that party realises that doesn't get you anywhere, they realise that they have no rope left because they're backed under this corner and that has left the entirety of Northern Ireland without an executive. And it is like, I mean, it leaves everybody in it because of this sort of parity of esteem and the fact that they have to be given a say, but all of a sudden they don't represent who they used to represent. It's, you know, it's a, it's a tough nut to crack. And um, when you see the sort of the circus that's going on, as we're talking, Joe Biden has gone around shaking everybody's hand, kissing all the babies. Uh, he called the All Blacks the Black and Tans this evening. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, Jesus those. Christ. There you go. Um, do, does that, like, I mean, this to me is what, you know, what the far right love to call virtue signaling. Like, does any of this make any sort of a difference whatsoever, even on a sort of a diplomatic a meter level, that all of a sudden Joe Biden is there telling us we're all great, look, lads, let's get it together? Or do you think that, you know, as soon as he's gone, it's just going to be back to business as usual? To be honest, like, in the North, it's really not going to make any difference. Um, the DUP, um, there's a saying, I don't know who coined the saying, but it was a saying that was coined about the DUP and it is the truest thing you'll ever hear is they never miss an opportunity, they miss an opportunity. Um, and we saw that today and, you know, Arlene Foster saying that Joe Biden hates the UK. You know, this real childish, immature way of acting that, you know, any friend, like, because he's nice to Ireland, then therefore he must hate the UK. You know, it's so reductive and something from the 1970s. Um, and I think in the North, everyone is quite embarrassed that Stormont doesn't sit in and Joe Biden came. But Joe Biden didn't go to Stormont for that reason. Joe Biden went to the Ulster University, um, which is a perfect, actually, encapsulation of the problem, Ulster University should have been situated in Derry. And because of where it is, it's exasperated the housing problem in the north. And that's why it couldn't pick anywhere better for Joe Biden to go, to be honest. <laughs> um, but he didn't go to Stormont because there was nothing there in Stormont. They're not sitting. Um, so uh, it was embarrassing. But sure, if we if the DU, he were worried about being embarrassed, you know, we'd be sitting having a very different conversation. On. <laughs> but they're not. Um the America thing doesn't really um, land with them like it does in the South mm-hmm. or, or with Sinn Féin. Um, and I think that's what, bothers, or that's what bothers the DUP as well, is that we see American politicians, successive American politicians, really um, showing respect to, to Sinn Féin. And I think that bothers the DUP as well. Um, there has been, as you mentioned a little bit earlier on, there's been a lot of talk about a united Ireland, about reconciliation, about a border poll, about the various different things that could happen. And you made a very valid point that, you know, I think first the South has to reconcile itself with the nationalist population, let alone the unionist population. Mm. Where, where do you see this going, Aoife? Because like, I, I'm 51 years old, I'll be 52 years old this summer. And like, I remember the hunger strikes. I remember being in Uri, I remember being in Belfast and Derry and places like that, both before and after the Good Friday Agreement. And I've seen an awful lot of a change and move towards what people of my generation would have wanted, which is a united Ireland, but it has to be a very fair Ireland as well, an inclusive Ireland. Are you hopeful at all? And I'm almost afraid to ask that question. I, to be honest, I know this is an answer that you're like, I don't care. What United Ireland? Like, don't get me wrong, it's a lovely idea. Um, you know, to be had to have the North back in Europe. Um, 
and an, an Asian once again and all that guff. Um, but to be honest, I I think it is inevitable because um the people most interested in showing us Northern Ireland works are the most pe- are the people most determined to show us it doesn't. And they show that by not being able to maintain power sharing in the north. Um I think partition has failed. Um that's I don't think you could ever argue otherwise. I think when you look at economic outputs, when you compare almost everything in the south apart from housing to the north, um partition has failed. Um it has failed the people in the north and the thing that bothers me is it fails the most vulnerable. Um I think Leo Veradgar actually said this and he made a very good point is that, you know, it's not a case of sticking one onto the other. It's what we should be aiming for is taking the best things from the Republic and the best things from the North, things like the NHS. Um, because the most Republican person in the world isn't going to vote to make his life worse. Um, my ma um, often says that she wants a United, but she's not going to pay to go to the doctor. Um, so I think it is inevitable because Brexit has made it inevitable. I think the DUP have made it inevitable. The conversation has started, despite the fact that Dublin does not want to have it. Um, the, the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael absolutely don't want to have the conversation, but they also were behind the conversation on equal marriage and they were behind the conversation on abortion too, and the public were way ahead of them. And I think the same thing is going to happen again. Um, I think you. You can tell the writings on the wall when you see Leo Veradgar coming out um, with more Republican statements than Micheál Martin, God save us. Um, so that's not because Leo Veradgar has backed up a book about James Conley. It's because he's a political animal and he knows what way the wind's blowing. Um, he knows that younger people are a lot more interested in United Ireland and the young votes is what they're all vying for. So I think it's inevitable. I don't think it'll be a nation once again. Um, the way most people have it in their heads, I think it'll be very complicated. I think there'll be a lot of work. I think there'll be a lot of strife. But it, I think it is inevitable. But I, it's not that, and I, not that I think you know we should be foregoing all the other problems, um, just to get it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, I think. Um, young people uh, in the south very much just want what young people in the north want is good access to housing opportunity um, rights over their own body and um, jobs Um, and if that can be offered by United Ireland people will vote for it but people won't vote to make their life worse and whoever is in government um, at the time, because we could be talking five years, we could be talking 20 years, but whoever is in government at the time is going to have to set out their stall that this is going to make your life better. Mm. Um, and if there's any ambiguity, they won't get it because I lived in Scotland. I was a journalist in Glasgow during the independence referendum there. They had a 900-page white paper on every single detail about how an independent Scotland was working, would work and they still lost. So... If Sinn Féin and the other parties say that they want uh, a referendum, they would need to get their shit together, British Irish, because there's a lot of work to do. Um, and to be honest, <laughs> the housing crisis, I think, is a much more pressing, pressing issue um, at the minute mm. than, uh, than uh, United Ireland. If and hopefully when, as you had it there, a United Ireland does happen, will it be with the unionist people or the loyalist people or despite them? Mm, there are unionists now who, you know, the conversation is happening with unionists. You know, people like Peter Robinson said that the conversation is happening. The former leader of the DUP is talking about United Ireland. Like, we're through the looking glass here. Um, I think what I said there about your life being better, that very much goes for the unionist people as well. People, and we are seeing this more and more, we saw this with the last census in the North, people are very remiss now, especially younger people, to call themselves British or Irish or, you know, that sort of thing um, doesn't bother young people as much anymore. 
I think the unionist people will have to be welcomed and placated in their concerns. Will have to be um, considered. I think you know things about their culture and while that looks like you know keeping Stormont at further an interim while having mandatory unionist seats, you know all those things are going to be have to um discussed and they will be very unpalatable and it won't be the people in the north it'll be people in the south and i find it hilarious when people in the south lecture me about the north and compromise because we already have the compromise we have the compromise that's held up to the rest of the world as a model for compromise and every poll that's taken on a united ireland says that people in the in the Republic don't want to pay more tax for United Ireland. They don't want to change the flag. They don't want to change the anthem. It's not us that needs to learn to compromise. It's you. Uh, there is no better mic drop moment for this conversation than that, Aoife. We leave it there. I'm looking forward <laughs> to your book about Sinn Féin and I'm looking forward to, hopefully, you'll be back in the political hot seat now covering it. But for now, Aoife Gracemore, thanks so much Thank for talking to me. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks. Is in February of 1998, and we had a terrible, terrible meeting. Uh, the worst insults, invective, a lawsuit was filed. We weren't making any progress, and the killings had started up again in the North. And on the flight back to New York that week, I thought, this is over. And I, I said, the only possible chance is if we have a hard, unbreakable deadline. That's it, no more. And so I drew up a plan. I talked to Bertie, I talked to Blair, and I got the others to agree. And really, that was kind of the first sense of we're going to make some progress. And in choosing a deadline, I was aware of the significance of Easter weekend in Irish history. And I thought it would be a good time to do it. And besides, I had promised my wife that I'd be back home by Easter. <laughs> That's really the important part. <laughs> I know. There you go. That is American Senator George Mitchell, who, of course, played a very big part in the peace process. And before we spoke to Aoife there, you would have heard Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, who was the Irish Taoiseach at the time. And, of course, Blair was the British Prime Minister, uh, making the announcement on Good Friday all those years ago. Uh, a fascinating perspective from Aoife. And this is the thing. I think we all, all wish that, you know, that sort of romantic thing could happen. But there's so many obstacles to be overcome. And they can't just be wished away. There's a whole other tra tradition on the island. There's a whole way of how do we organise a united Ireland? How do we organise a society? And really, the more you look at it, um, and you, the way you look at sort of you know health and housing and schools and everything else in Ireland today, there's so much work that needs to be done. Uh, and I suppose that goes back then. I was only tweeting about it there because you know Easter, as Mitchell was saying there in that little clip, it's a very significant time for Irish people and in particular for Irish Republicans. And I go back to that part of the 1916 uh, Declaration, the Proclamation of Independence, that said that you know um, this was we wanted to be cherishing all the children of the nation equally and all these things, and we haven't really lived up to that at all times. And in fact, we've fallen very far short of it many times when you think about how many homeless children there are in Ireland today. Not that other countries don't have their problems as well, but if we really want want to have a united Ireland in the spirit of that proclamation and that declaration and what happened uh, on Easter Monday 1916 we're really going to need to get to work on it lads and we're really going to need to look after one another in a much better way than what we have done previously that is it for this week I have a few ardens in the fire for next week uh, but if you do have any stories please do get in touch right because um as I say, there's a podcast on every week and sometimes it works out. Uh, part of the thing that went wrong just as I got COVID there was that somebody had to cancel on me at the last minute and that left me uh, struggling to, to find an interviewee. So if you do happen to know of anybody or if you have a story yourself, uh, please do let me know. Because remember, I started this pro podcast because there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad, right? So please do get in touch. In the meantime, look after yourselves, look after one another and I'll talk to you again next week on the Global Gale podcast. Good luck. <laughs>